New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. For most of us, flying is no longer fun. Besides navigating our own reservations, there are long lines to get through security, and we hope that by the time we get to our seat, there'll be space for our carry-ons in the overhead bins, and maybe not to be sitting in front of a kid who enjoys kicking our seat. Today, we'll be speaking with Mark Van Honecker, who has an impressive genius in reminding us how magical it is to take to the sky. Mark Van Honecker is a seasoned long-haul commercial pilot and a brilliant lyrical writer about his journeys as experienced both from the air and on the ground, where he chronicles for us some of the planet's great cities He's also a regular contributor to the New York Times and a columnist for the Financial Times. Born in Pittsfield in western Massachusetts, he trained as a historian and worked in business before starting his flight training in Britain in 2001. He now flies the Boeing 787 Dreamliner from London to cities around the world. Mark Van Honecker is the author of Skyfaring, A Journey with a Pilot. And listeners, full disclosure here from your host, this is one of the books on my all-time top 10 to read. That's Skyfaring. Love that book. He's also written How to Land a Plane, which is delightful, and now, imagine a city, a pilot's journey across the urban world. Join us for the next hour as we see the world through the eyes of a long-haul commercial pilot. I'm speaking with Mark in his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mark, welcome. Oh, thank you, Justine. It's a it's a real pleasure to be speaking with you. We've had a, a long time connection over email, and and recently saw each other uh, for the first time. And I, I'm it's, it's a real honor and a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm delighted. We've we've waited a while, like several years now, indeed, to, to get together like this. And I'm very very excited about this. And I I would like to start off as as a young boy. 
you were fascinated by cities and even made up an imaginary city. I remember reading on your 40th birthday, your mother made up a scrapbook for you. And in the middle of that scrapbook was that a drawing that you made as a young boy of an imaginary city. I'd, I'd love for you to tell us, what, what was it like to see that drawing again uh, many decades later? Uh, yeah, so growing up uh, in Pittsfield, in uh, that, that small city in Western Massachusetts, I, I was, you know, I had two passions. Uh, I was really drawn to airplanes and flying, and um, I also was drawn to maps and to my my globe, which I had one of those light up globes. And the cities on it were were just an endless source of fascination for me. Just just to read out their names, just to spin the globe to its far side and and read out a name. And of course, the cities were nothing more than names for me back then. Um, and as a kid, you know, some kids have imaginary friends or imaginary pets, and I had an imaginary city, um, which I liked to draw. I mean, it wasn't even that imaginary because I, I would I, I would make maps of it and uh, and and draw air routes to and from it, and it was the kind of it it was the kind of thing that um, you know a kid could really sink themselves into. Um, and for me, it was it was a really an ongoing um, joy and pleasure throughout my childhood. And then I found a scrapbook. Um, that my mom had made when I was young, actually, um, but I, I didn't come across it again, or I didn't really remember opening it again until until much later. And I found a map of the city, and you know, it had a lot of transportation infrastructure. <laughs> you won't be surprised to hear it had it had airports and uh, you know runways and a monorail, and uh, it had a lot of churches, which is interesting because. Um, you know, my my family was uh, had been religious, but was not so religious when I was growing up. So there was a lot to think about and to look back on, uh, even as an adult. True enough. I think of my own passion was was horses, and I had a whole index box of all my imaginary horses and their names and their oh, size wow. and wow. everything. So I I understand that passion, and I recently ran across uh, this poem once again which really reminds me of this thread in your life, this thread of cities and, you know, first imagining them and making maps of them and everything. And this is a poem by William Stafford called The Way It Is. And I'm, I'm going to read it because I think it really applies. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. Don't ever let go of the thread. That's a lovely poem. I think my mom would have liked it too, actually. <laughs> yeah, from what you write about her, I think she she would. And that just reminds me of just the thread that kind of goes through all your writings. You talk about history and geography and science and poetry and philosophy. I mean, you really give us a a different view. So I want to ask you, 
What made you decide to organize your book the way you did into sections that cover, very different from other travelogues, let's say, of like a city of gates or a city of circles, snow or rivers? So what gave you the idea to to organize the book this way? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, when I started this book, uh, it was going to be, I thought it would be a straightforward travelogue uh, of some of the cities I see as a pilot. Um, and, you know, more and more as I came to write it, I realized it was also going to be a, a kind of memoir. And, you know, Pittsfield, my, my hometown, is a is a pretty small place, obviously, compared to some of the cities that I write about in the book, like like Delhi and Cape Town and Calgary. Um, and yet I do think cities have many things in common. Noam Chomsky, the linguist, one of his theories is that languages, just even though they seem to have so much diversity, they actually are made up of these quite simple uh, pieces, which are just rearranged in slightly different ways. And and yet from those those basic units, we have this incredible diversity of, of languages around the world. And I feel like cities are a little bit like that too. You know, they are obviously incredibly different and incredibly unique and, and come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Some are new, some are very ancient. Um, and yet, if you think about the elements of them, whether it's bridges or streets or rivers or, you know, even cafes and, and houses of worship, and, you know, they, they are kind of arrangements of, of these basic forms. And I like to think of them as almost grammatical arrangements of of, of these. And, and in that sense, a, a hometown is your first language because it's where you first learn all these pieces, which you can then identify even as you're exploring places that seem so different. And so I thought that structure of, um, you know, city of gates, city of snow, um, was a way of saying that, you know, I I understand that these places are incredibly different from the place I came from. I also see in them the the structures that I came to recognize growing up, even in a, in a small city that most of the people in this city probably haven't even heard of. Right, exactly. Well said, well said. One of the... Uh chapters or sections in the book, you talk about the color blue. And it's it's one of your favorite colors. And so I would love for you to give us a little reading about the color blue and how that applies to Cape Town, South Africa. Sure. And I, I should say for your listeners, I'm wearing blue. Um, I've got a blue sweatshirt <laughs> on and blue trousers and it's my standard uniform. So this is a section um, from the chapter called City of Blue, which focuses on a few other cities, but the, the heart of it is Cape Town. And if any of your listeners have, have been there or may dream of going there or, or live there now, um, they'll recognize its uh, unique uh, blues, uh, both in the air and the, and, and the water. In the start of this reading, I'm uh, in the cockpit of a 747, um, a few hours away from landing in Cape Town. High above the South Atlantic, I sip my coffee as the stars fade. For the first time, we contact a South African controller using a short-range radio. The air traffic control centers that deal with planes that are far from their origin and their destinations are nothing like those we might picture from the movies. Rather than a weather-thrashed, glass-walled box perched atop an airport's control tower, they're typically low, windowless, and neutrally lit. From within such a center, a woman with a South African accent calls to us as we cross the bluing sky off her country's west coast. She gives us a unique code to transmit as we come within range of her radar. You are identified, she says, 
the clarity of her voice, the most obvious sign that our long oceanic journey is nearing its end. You are under radar control. In the brightening sky ahead of us, a flaw appears. At first, it's like nothing more than a dark crack in the far wall of a swimming pool, but slowly it grows. Other lines appear in front of it and behind, too, recalling Melville's overlapping spurs of mountains bathed in their hillside blue from the passage in Moby Dick, in which he argues that not even such transcendent landscapes can compete with the elemental appeal of water. The blues of hills and ocean and of sky as well now fill the windscreen as we near the ranges that dominate the landscape around the maritime metropolis known as the Mother City. In the cockpit, we conduct our approach briefing, and I make an announcement to the passengers about the weather they can expect on the ground, patches of morning mist under otherwise clear skies, a temperature of 65 degrees. Not long ago, I wrote to various family members, friends, pilots, and correspondents who either live in Cape Town or grew up there. No one was surprised to be asked about their city's most memorable color, and no one suggested it might be anything other than blue. One Cape Tonian described her love of the skies and seas near her city and mentioned, too, the spectacular blue of the Agapanthus africanus, the African lily, a flower native to South Africa. It was February when we corresponded, and she lamented that the blooms nearest her home were finishing. Another Cape Tonian described his love for the incredible array of blues from deep indigo out on the Atlantic to the lightest turquoise in the shallows, blue water as far as the eye can see, with the blue haze of Table Mountain punctuating the far horizon. He even remarked, as I never had until after I read his words, on the array of blue in the clouds and showers that the violence of winter's cold fronts brings to the Cape, seemingly straight from the gusty southern latitudes known as the Roaring Forties. Oh, that's a wonderful piece of uh, writing that, that we get a glimpse into. I'm here with Mark Ben Honecker, and he is the author of Imagine a City, a Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Van Honecker, and he is the author of Imagine a City, and he's a long-haul commercial pilot. And let's go back. You mentioned Pittsfield and your ancestral town, and I remember reading something from um, your book that said Hegger Bruegel, and I may be mispronouncing her name, the Director of Cultural Affairs for the Open Stockbridge Muncie Band of Mohegan 
Indians once said, it's especially important for young people to return to their ancestral home and come to know its waters. And I love that. And I'm also reminded of a former guest that many of our listeners know, uh, Mark Nepo. He talks about the need for an inner reference point, a core location of source that uh, helps us to be able to return to our well-being during stress in our life. So let's talk about Pittsfield because you kind of come back to it over and over in the book. I mean, you take us to many, many cities. And so what is this ancestral town and how does it help you in your own well-being? And I know it was not an easy town in some ways. Yeah, uh, Pittsfield is uh, a, a town now of about 45,000 people. It's a city, in fact. Um, and, you know, growing up there, uh, in many ways, I had a, a very lovely childhood. Uh, it was, you know, it's surrounded by by forests. Uh, it's a beautiful city in many ways. The schools are good and, and the you know, there's four lovely seasons. You know, it's a wonderful place. Um, and yet, uh, like many gay kids growing up in a small place, I really dreamed of being elsewhere. And that tied in very well with my love of languages and maps and airplanes and probably drove some of those feelings as well um, because I saw airplanes as the, as kind of the way you would leave and cities as the place you would go to. And I did leave, like many of my friends. Uh, I I grew up, went to college, and and left. But I kept coming back. You know, there's a group of friends there that were friends of my parents that were kind of like an extended family. We still celebrate the holidays together, and many of the places that mean the most to me are are in Pittsfield, and many of the people too. And as I got older, I, I began to understand that a hometown is something that, you know, you can't get away from even if you try in some ways. And and no one can try as effectively as a pilot, of course, who flies <laughs> so far, so often. And so, you know, as I've gotten older, I've come to embrace my attachment to Pittsfield. And, and you know, now when I come back to it, I, I have that kind of strange sense, which maybe many Americans have, because we move so much as a people, where you go back to a place you're from and you think... And you walk around and you and you you kind of almost you kind of live in you you kind of live in a landscape of memory. Uh, you know, my elementary school, my first one, I, I only did one year there of, of first grade, and then it was demolished to build a video store and like a Domino's Pizza and stuff. And you know, and now uh, I walk past that that parking lot, that mini mall, and all I can think of is my memories of that one year of first grade and the friends who live nearby. And, and of course, and then, but when I look at it now, you know, there, there are families getting out of their cars there and, you know, those kids won't have those memories. They'll have different memories. And so the way in which the city is going on, it's like all cities, it continues. Um, and yet for those who have a particular attachment to it or history to it, uh, I think is, they live in a, in a different kind of way, and I. This book is a way of of tying that origin, that place, uh, to the the huge megalopolises I go to now. Some of the largest cities that have ever existed, like Tokyo and Sao Paulo and Mexico City. You know, and you know that's there's often a kind of story. You know, we're familiar with that story of someone who, you know, they kind of they kind of hate their hometown and they leave, and then they come back later and 
suddenly realized how good it was. And that's not really my version of the story. I always loved Pittsfield. Uh, even when I was young, even when I wanted to leave it, I loved it. And I still love it. And and so that um, that dynamic of loving a place that you wanted to leave, that tension, um, I think is is unreconcilable. I think it's something that will always be with me. But I, I did want to chronicle it in this book because I think you know, many, many Americans have that kind of connection to their, to the place they, they grew up. I see that. I know for myself, I recently looked up and Googled um, my place, um, my ancestral home in Alabama. And I was just wondering, my great grandfather founded one of the banks, the Alexander City Bank. And it was this oh, wow. beautiful wow. building that white stone and it had this big clock. And I was wondering, gee, I wonder, does it still stand? And when I Googled it, it, it was still there, although now it's an insurance company. <laughs> but <laughs> but that was exciting to see something that actually remained as, as well as the home my great-grandfather built is also there. So it's it's real touchstone for me. So many people I, I talk to, um, I, I sometimes I tell the story of the first time I was able to look at a place on Google Maps like that when they first brought out those satellite maps and images. And the very first place I looked at was my hometown uh, and my house. And I looked down on the shingles, like the dark shingles of the roof. And I tried to pick out my room underneath the shingles. And, and so many people tell me that story. And so it's really interesting um, to hear it from you as well. And, and to think that was something that drew you back. I think it's common. It must be a very common feeling and a valuable one. Yes, I, I think so. And I know as a long haul pilot, you have these layovers, but they're not that long, you know, sometimes 24 hours or maybe longer, 48 hours. And because you travel back to a city over and over, it becomes very familiar to you in some ways as, as you explore it in different ways in the time that you have, which I'm impressed you take the time to explore it. I mean, you don't sit in your hotel room and just sleep it off or or watch television or whatever, or do your email, but you actually go out, walk the city, breathe the city, and communicate with the city, hear the city, the sounds. And I was struck by something that you asked yourself when you, let's say, I think it was Tokyo that you were feeling that you have been there as a as a young man as a student you were actually there early and then you travel there many times and then there was a break and you didn't go back for a while and then when you're there you notice that you were asking the question oh has the city changed or have i and I thought that was a very important question. Yeah, I think that's. Um, I, I think about that all the time. And, and Tokyo is a great example because um, when I was in high school, I did. I went to Japan for a, a summer to to stay with the Japanese family. That was a very important trip to me. It was the first time I'd been to Asia. Uh, it was the first time I'd kind of gone anywhere on my own really um and it was a real adventure and we we weren't in tokyo we were actually in a city called kanazawa but we 
we passed through Tokyo, and you know Tokyo is, as some of your listeners who've been there will know, is is it is is one of the the large. It's the largest city that's ever existed. It's like thirty seven million people who live there, um, and its scale is is extraordinary. And and then I didn't go back for a while, and then I went back in college, and then later on when I worked in the business world, and then as a pilot, and 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 it really is, you know, I I guess in some ways. Clearly, both the city is changing and I'm changing, but you start noticing things that you didn't notice. Different kinds of things, like when I was a kid, I was when when I was first there, I was I was just amazed by all the by the different, um, you know, the character, the, you know, the characters on the on in the, of the language that I would see everywhere, and um, and then you know I, maybe the next time I went back, I was focused on on the food more or the transport system and or the smell of the city as you say and it's hard to know whether you're noticing things that uh are different about the city or about if they're different uh, only because if they were always there and you were just not someone who was interested in that before or or couldn't um you know couldn't perceive that because you were focused on other aspects of a city you know cities of course are are made up of of people and everyone who goes to a city or has a connection to a city like Tokyo will have those kind of that kind of relationship to it and and if you think of the city that exists uh, you know collectively or in the mind of all the people who know it or love it or thought of it or live there or whose parents were from there or grandparents um, you start to see a city as as something more than skyscrapers and concrete and paved roads but really is something that exists in the imagination of of everyone who knows of it or has been there or would dreams of going there someday i think as a as a pilot you have a different orientation towards the city towards life towards the planet itself and what i notice in in your writing is that you continue to to bring my vision, my my eyesight up, up and out. You often talk, instead of saying left or right, you often say north or south. I turn south or I turn north. Or So you're, you're thinking of the direction you are inhabiting on earth itself, or you talk about sunrise or clouds, like we think of clouds, and and there's something that you talk about. There's a quote from Evangelista Torcelli, I think. It, um, it's, we live submerged at the bottom of an ocean of air. It's a quote in some yeah, writing that you've done. Yeah, and, that's skyfaring. That's right. Yeah. Oh, from skyfaring. Okay, yeah. and and you you talk about how flying inverts our sense of the world, and we look down upon such clouds, upon what more typically looks down on us, and we realize that today it's the planet, not the sky, that's partly cloudy. So. There you are. You're kind of breaking open that image of of the locality of our lives. I appreciate that so much, and I think it's so needed. Oh, thank you. I um, yeah, I I really do think that flying offers us opportunities to 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 think about 
the world and to see it in new ways. Uh, just just to be above the clouds is such a wonder. Uh, you know, that was an experience that previously was only open to to mountain climbers. Basically, you had to. Mm-hmm. You know, if you you had to climb a mountain at the right time um, and at the right weather, and to suddenly look down on the clouds, um, and now uh, every every time we you know fly home for Thanksgiving or uh, you know we'll have that experience, and especially uh, living in, in London where the weather is so often gray, um, especially at this time of year, to 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 think that it's always a sunny day up above. Um, it, you know, is a lovely thought, and it's one that you don't need to be an air traveler to um, to to notice. Exactly, and you help us notice that. I'm here with Mark Van Honecker, and he's the author of "Imagine a City: A Pilot's Journey Across the Urban World." And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, markvanhoneker.com, and I'll spell his last name. Van Honecker, V-A-N-H-O-E-N-A-C-K-E-R, Van Honecker. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Van Honecker, and we're talking about flying to different cities and seeing them in different ways. And um, but I love especially when you share with us approaching and landing a plane in, in different cities. And I, I wanted to... Um, just read a little a little thing from from your book imagine a city and you're approaching Jeddah in Saudi Arabia at night and here's what you write you write the thinnest edge of the eastern sky begins to lighten while in the starry blackness straight above there's no hint yet of coming day Toward the slowly coloring horizon, we race over the water, steering, sometimes on a cloudless night, it's as simple as this, to the lights on the far shore. The runways here are lined not only with the wind, but also with the coastline. And as we descend, the city's seafront flows past us on the left side cockpit window. To our right, is Mecca and the rest of Arabia and the point in the mountains from which the sun is about to rise. So there's an example of that orientation. I mean, we can, we've all flown and we look out our window and we see something passing under the wing, you know, that shoreline. But you bring our vision up and you say, okay, and beyond that mountain where the sun is about to appear as the earth turns is Mecca and 
all of Arabia and all of the rest of the world. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> yay. Mark, we're so used to looking down at our feet or what we're just right in front of our nose. And I think that is the magic of what you're helping us do is to to open up our vision and say, okay, there's more here. There's more here uh, that we can breathe into. Talk about that a bit, how you came about even to write, become a writer. I mean, I don't think of a pilot as so much of a writer, but you are a lyrical, beautiful, almost poetic writer. Can you talk about how you got into writing and about all of this? Yeah, I, you know, I growing up writing was something that I always enjoyed doing, and um, when I, I had uh, diaries and journals that I kept from when I was very young, and. You know, one thing I noticed as I got older is that those diary entries got much, much longer whenever we left home. If we were on a vacation or certainly that summer in Japan, we were, you know, suddenly I was writing, you know, 10 times as much because I was experiencing so much that was new to me. And also, even though I was seeing things like like new streetscapes in Japan or or, or, or new, you know, mountains in Japan, I was also able to look back on where I'd come from and think about my home life from far away, you know, that that kind of perspective that distance offers us, I think, is on our own lives as well as on new places is really powerful. There are various versions of that proverb that, you know, we we travel to discover ourselves. And I don't I don't think that's entirely true. I think there are lots of uh ways to discover yourself without leaving without leaving your your hometown and there's uh, lots of things to see uh all over the world and I, I tried to capture these in this in the book yeah so writing was something that I'd always done I also had a lot of pen pals when I was growing up uh in uh in Hong Kong and, and Sydney uh, Australia and in Helsinki and, and in uh Manila near, near Manila in the Philippines those letters were also a great way to connect with other people and to describe uh, in that case to describe my hometown um you know to write to someone in Sydney and tell them about the snowy winters of Pittsfield was was uh, something I really enjoyed did you ever meet any of these pen pal? Well, funnily enough, uh, I did meet my pen pal in Australia. Um, I met her, gosh, maybe it was 10 years ago. Um, I, I flew to Australia as a pilot and uh and we met up. It was it was incredible. I couldn't believe it. And the whole kind of the whole point of a pen pal is that you'd never meet them. Um, you know, now we have, we don't write letters anymore. We're we're on we're on Facebook together, so we we kind of stay in touch in that modern way. But I have actually met her a second time last um just last uh, September this year, so two months ago, uh, I flew to Australia again, and and we had an amazing dinner looking out at the opera house, and it's kind of a unusual connection to someone. You know, she's um, you know, she's getting on with her life, and I'm getting on with my life, and yet every once in a while we check in. Uh, it's a lovely, it's a lovely connection, and and it began with writing. Um, it began with describing places uh, to someone else, and and I I like to to think that you know in the cockpit or you know whether I'm describing things from the cockpit or or after we land and I'm exploring a city that I'm that I'm. I'm hopefully able to to share with people the magic of these places because because every pilot sees more of the world than 
you know, anyone has a right to. I mean, we, we see so much of it from above and then we see the cities we land in and, and explore. And um, I'm conscious of, of how lucky I am to see so much of the world, so much of the urban world in particular. And, and um, it's a joy for me to, to share it as best I can. I know one of the ones that a city that you talk about in the book that, that really impressed me was Brasilia. And that was a place that your your father actually went to shortly after it was um, erected right. well, or whatever. Yeah, while I was being built. Yeah, that's while right. While yeah. being built, and uh, and then your husband, whose name is Mark too. <laughs> yes, so yeah. Mark, uh, your husband took all those slides that your father did, and he had them printed and and gave you this book of all these prints that your father did of Brasilia and and other places. So um talk about Brasilia. What what is the magic of this place? Well um Brasilia is uh, an extraordinary place uh for anyone who loves cities. It was uh, a purpose built capital. So it was it was designed uh uh, from scratch, just like Washington DC was, for example. Uh, but of course, much more recently. And if you're interested in the, in imaginary places, uh, Brasilia has this curious, uh, historical detail that, uh, a, a priest in Italy in the 19th century had a dream one night and he wrote down the details of this dream because he dreamed of a city that would arise in Brazil, um, you know, 70 or 80 years later. And this this Italian priest had never been to Brazil. He would never go to Brazil. He had no particular interest in urban design or anything, but he had this dream. And then he specified the latitude and everything. And later that Brasilia arose in much the same place that he described. So it, it's, it's a dreamed city that actually um, became real, which is an extraordinary detail. Uh, and then my father had lived in Brazil um, in the 1960s in a number of cities, and he went to visit Brasilia while it was being constructed. Um, so for me to go there uh, later was, uh, you know, an extraordinary experience and and a, and a chance to, as you say, to look at those slides, um, which uh, became a book that my husband gave me at Christmas one year. And the other detail about Brasilia, which may appeal, is that it's in the shape of an airplane. Um, it looks, uh, I mean, from above, you know, some viewers will see a bird, some will see a cross, and others will see an airplane. And uh, whichever it was designed to look like, Brazil was very, at the, at the time, the, the promise of the airplane and technology and connection and was really strongly linked to the idea of, of, of a new future for a country. So uh, if you want an airplane-shaped city or <laughs> um, a, a city that's an imaginary city made real, or if you just happen to have a personal connection to Brazil, uh, then Brasilia is, is the place to go. I Googled it then to see it, not seen it from the airs, but you can get an aerial view on Google. And it's as you describe, and maybe even some would say it looks like a rising phoenix. Yeah, especially at night. Yeah. One of the things that you describe, oh, and I had to look it up because this goes back to your favorite color, Mark. It goes back to blue. And there is a cathedral, I believe it's in Brasilia, uh, Dom 
Don Bosco Theater, uh, Cathedral, that has these extraordinary blue windows. Can you describe that? Oh, that it's cathedral? just, uh, it's just, you know, walls and walls of blue light, you know, multi story windows uh, of, of varying shades of blue. Um, and it's just an amazing place to go. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously a very modern structure, like everything in Brasilia. Um, and, uh, if you happen to be in the city and wish to attend a mass or, or observe a mass, uh, or just to walk around the cathedral, um, it's, it's a really spectacular place. And if blue is your favorite color, uh, as it is for me and for most pilots, I think, uh, you know, Cape Town is probably the, the bluest city I know, but in terms of buildings, it might be that cathedral in, in Brasilia. It's it's utterly sublime. One of the other things that you mentioned when you're writing about Brasilia that I noticed um, in the uh, Metropolitan Cathedral, which is a different one, and it's extraordinary with hanging angels and the glass is incredible and all of that. But outside, there are these towers, four towers that That's right, at the yeah. top of each tower is a bell, and each bell represents a ship of Columbus. You talk about looking at those towers and once again, here you go. You you go beyond that which is right in our at our face. The accumulating clouds behind those pillars, and you start to wonder. Okay, that's a pretty pretty fierce uh, accumulation <laughs> happening here. And then you start to think to yourself, okay, if I were flying. How would I fly around this and what would I do? And, you know, so you just give us this whole other view of looking at weather. Yeah, pilots probably can't stop themselves from looking at clouds and weather and thinking about what they would do in this or that situation. But it is a nice perspective to have on the ground as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my my father was a pilot. Well, he was a lumber broker, but I think he did that just so he could fly. <laughs> and, and he would always have um, a shortwave radio tuned to weather. This is back in the 40s and 50s. And the dining room table would just be filled with these maps. They were actual physical maps that yeah, the, looked, the, sec the sectional charts. Is that yeah, the is, sectional yeah. charts. He would fill the dining room table with those as part of my uh, memory. I'm here with Mark Van Honecker, and he is the author of Imagine a City, a pilot's journey across the urban world. And he is also a long-haul commercial pilot who's sharing his many wonderful adventures with us. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Mark Van Honecker, and we're talking about flight and clouds and looking at cities in new ways. I, I know that you talk about something called place lag. I mean, we all have heard the phrase, oh, I have jet lag. But as a pilot, you you talk about place lag. So what what is that and how do you cope with it? So uh, place lag is a term that I, that I, I like for you know, something which is analogous to the difficulty we have adjusting to crossing time zones. So, you know, jet lag occurs because we can travel faster now than our bodies can adjust. So we travel across five or six time zones or 10, um, and it takes our bodies a while to adjust to it because, you know, when we were evolving as a species, we would make journeys much more slowly. We would see everything that, that came between A and B. We would be walking across the land or perhaps canoeing across the body of water. And, and we knew it. We saw everything that came between uh, our origin and our destination. Uh, and so place was not really something that shifted suddenly in the same way that time wasn't either. But now, of course, we can cross the whole world in, in a matter of hours. And especially if we fall asleep, if we're a passenger and we go to sleep on a flight and then wake up the next morning, you know, we, you know, we, we, we've really crossed the world. It's almost like teleportation. I mean, it, if you could have shown it to someone from a thousand years ago, they would think it was essentially, it was essentially teleportation, right? Like you, you get on a, you step into a tube and, and eight hours later, you you get off on, on another continent. And I, I think our bodies have, you know, difficulty adjusting to time changes in the same way our deep sense of place takes a little time to adjust. And, I think actually, you know, there isn't anything you can do about jet lag except to wait it out and, and you know not have too much coffee and that kind of thing. And with place lag as well, I think there's there's no way to speed it up. So we should enjoy it because I find that it opens up our eyes to what's different. Because we, you know, I'll arrive in you know in Bangkok uh, and suddenly we'll be walking along some canal and there's you know a ferry crossing the river and and kids jumping off their houses on stilts into the water. And I'll think you know yesterday I was at a coffee shop in London. How can I be here? Like how, yeah. and I still say that after all these years, like, how is it that I, that right. I can be here? And, you know, I'm, and I, and I flew the plane, so I should know. You <laughs> know, <laughs> uh, and I do know in a technical sense. And yet, uh, I think our, 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 our minds are, are so surprised at the wonder of, of place when it changes so quickly like that, when it's almost like a shutter opening and closing. And, and we look, you know, we close our eyes and we open them again and we see, we see a different part of this world. Uh, and so place lag, I think, is um, inevitable, and I think it's a good thing. I, I think it reminds us that travel is is, is a miracle and was, is something that would have amazed almost all humans who've ever lived to, to be able to travel the way some of us do now. Exactly, exactly. And I, I'm thinking of another aspect of travel, especially air travel, and that's flying can give us a sense of solitude. As a passenger, you know, you have to shut off all your electronics. You, you're, I, I'm, I think this may be slightly changing. And I'm sad about that, uh, that, that we're able to still maintain contact now. But it would be where we would just get on a plane and then everything else, we just have to let go of everything else. And I, I think of, my own um, sense of the first time I really felt a sense of solitude 
was flying with my father. I, I was one of four siblings, and so it was pretty rambunctious around our house and hard to get, you know, any solitude. But Daddy would take us one at a time on flights with him. And oh, wow. so I'd be sitting in the co-pilot seat in a, in a yellow staggerwing beach craft with a huge motor that made a huge sound. <laughs> and the sound would be like um, almost like a harmonium uh, of a single note. It was like this drone that would happen. And I would look out the window and I would see slowly the landscape flowing beneath me, the rivers and the highways and the houses and the forest and the cities. I mean, just watching that pass by. And it gave me a sense of solitude and quietude that, that is really a, a touchstone for me today that is oh, that it's okay to feel that kind of solitude. And am I describing anything that, that occurs to you oh, as, a, uh, as a pilot? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, um, I'm i as connected as anybody um, in terms of you know being online and, and reading too much news and, and being on social media, especially as a writer. Uh, it's important to have a presence uh, there. And... Uh, but when I go to work, I, I shut off my phone and, you know, and we enter a, a kind of time and space where, you know, we really aren't, I mean, in some ways where the plane is, it couldn't be more technologically advanced. And we are, of course, connected with radios and stuff. But in terms of, in terms of that day to day kind of interaction online and, and, and day to day um, communication with, you know, where you're getting emails from your bank or whatever, and you, um, it does feel like a disconnection, um, and and it's a real joy in some ways. And and you know, then I I finally get to the other side of the world and go to a hotel room, and I switch on, you know, I connect to the Wi-Fi, and my phone just you know lights up and it's buzzing because it's getting all its messages that it didn't get for 20 hours or so, and I really appreciate that gap. And I have a lot of friends in the. Um, well, let me, I mean, I should think actually about my diaries and my journals when I was a kid. And I did a lot of that um, journaling in the window seats of planes. And I loved to be in the window seat of a passenger plane and and looking out and kind of writing. And that sense where you could suddenly look down at your page and, and make a few notes that were, you know, very personal and then suddenly look out and see, you know, what looked like, the, you know, what looks to a kid like the entire planet out the window, that um, sense of, of distance and closeness um, is a really interesting kind of dialogue. And, you know, even I, I have friends who work in the business world who have, you know, pretty, who've been in the in business uh, for a long time, and they love getting on planes and just working because they're able to do all their emails and, um, and, and, and get everything out of the way. But they, they also have this time to to really be disconnected while, well, you know, while looking out at the world and being between one place and another and thinking about, you know, liminal places and, and ideas and, you know, what, you know, that we often talk about the 30,000 foot perspective. You'll hear that in business or in politics. And, and I think, I think a lot of people really enjoy that um, and find it useful. And of course, now you can connect to the Wi-Fi on the plane as a passenger. Um, but I have friends who, who refuse to do that because they appreciate the, um, the disconnection. Yeah, exactly. I, I always choose that um, window seat 
whenever I fly. I, yeah, I just, me too. Me I too. just like, oh, and I try and figure out uh, where I'm traveling, which side of the plane, starboard or port, might be the best for traveling from San Francisco to, let's say, Portland. I might want to be on the starboard side, I guess. And and where I can see Mount Shasta. Oh yeah, see, yeah. That, that's all. Um, that's music yeah. to my ears. That's <laughs> that, you, yeah. that you think about it that way. I do as well. Yeah, you write about somewhere where I read you're flying at night and you see aurora borealis, but you know the passengers are are asleep or anything, and you don't want to announce you know something on the thing, and some of the passengers can only see it if they're on the starboard side of the plane or the port side yeah, of the plane. Yeah. So, so what you did, and I love this, is that you you inform the cabin crew to to see if anybody's awake who might want to be alerted that they can see this right now. I love that, Mark. Yeah, that's um that's a nice that's the only way to do it really because you want you can't make an announcement to a whole sleeping plane and as you say most people aren't in windows on outside. Um so but you know the the flight attendants will you know walk down the plane and if they see someone working late or watching a movie they might point it out to them and and you know we've had good feedback on that where people then later say oh my god it was so amazing to see and uh, and it's it's a good way of remembering how how valuable how lucky we are to be able to see those things because in the cockpit we see northern lights you know throughout the winter uh, on many sometimes even most flights uh in the winter especially if we're going to canada uh or or japan or something we'll you know we'll see them you know if you see the northern lights for three hours you start to forget that it's amazing and so when you share it with other people you're reminded that it isn't it is a a wonderful thing to be able to see that's an important point because it, it's the sharing of it that then brings it back to heart, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, in, in, you know, and that ex- that's part of why I wrote Skyfaring and also why I want to try to imagine a city. I, I think, uh, you know, I'm really aware that when I was a kid, I had no idea how, how amazing it would be to become a pilot. Both things we see from the cockpit. And then, of course, the cities that we go to, we go to so many cities and get it again and again. Even the most amazing job can start to seem routine. So um, writing about it and and trying to say, you know, what are the things I would, you know, tell my goddaughters about this? Or what would I tell my younger self? What do I want to tell my friends about at dinner when I come back from a trip? You know, and trying to make, to, to, to use that as a, as a, as a guiding principle for, for my writing has been, um, a way of keeping me interested as well uh, as you know as time goes on well you certainly have given us a huge gift keep writing keep writing i love it i want to tell our listeners that i've been here with long haul commercial pilot mark van honecker and he's the author of skyfaring as he mentioned and also imagine a city a pilot's journey across the urban world. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, markvanhoneker.com. And he spells his name V as in Victor, A-N-H-O-E-N-A-C-K-E-R, vanhoneker.com, markvanhoneker.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3,777. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.